Chris Revac. This is Working Capital Conversations. Has there been a time when science has played a more significant, more direct role in the quality, if not quantity, of our lives? The most obvious example, of course, is COVID-19, from understanding the pandemic to developing a cure in record time. And yet simultaneously, just as science brings us together, allowing individuals and societies to connect again, has there been a time when science has divided us more, not only in our acceptance of how to manage COVID, but even extending to our climate? How should we, in business, public policy, and our own lives, reconcile the seemingly contradictory trend that arguably science is as inspiring and dividing right now as perhaps any time in history? For answers, if not insights, few are better to ask than Nick Dirks. Dirks is president and CEO of the New York Academy of Sciences, whose mission is, quote, science for the public good. Throughout its history, the Academy's membership has featured thinkers and innovators from all walks of life, including U.S. Presidents Johnson and Monroe, Thomas Edison, Charles Darwin, Margaret Mead, and many more. Today, the Academy has more than 20,000 members in 100-plus countries, with the President's Council that includes 36 Nobel laureates. Nick also is Professor of History and Anthropology at UC Berkeley, where he served as its 10th Chancellor. He has held numerous fellowships and scholarships, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a MacArthur Foundation Residential Fellowship, and the Lionel Trilling Award for his book, Casts of Mind. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. As Nick notes in this conversation, almost every issue he sees in our future requires bringing science and scientists together with public issues. Before my conversation with Nick Dirks, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Nick Dirks. Nick, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Great to be here, Chris. As we talk right now, today, I understand that you are about to complete your first year at the Academy. You picked quite a year to start. Do you feel like last year was spring training for you and the regular season is about to begin? Or is a better metaphor that you arrived at the war just in time for D-Day? <laughs> Great question. Uh, you know, I think I'll start with a sports metaphor, which is that I was dropped in uh, pretty much like uh, like Rivera used to be for the Yankees, uh, just at the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded. And I needed to do something fast to make sure that uh, we didn't give away the game. But it's been a really peculiar year for everyone in every possible uh, walk of life. But to start a new job in New York, uh, being based in Berkeley, California, uh, to take on a role uh, uh, leading a distinguished and venerable um, learned society, the New York Academy of Sciences, which was formed in 1817, 204 years ago, uh, uh, was a great honor, but it in some ways couldn't have been better timing. Uh, I think the country, the world has all uh, uh, recognized the importance of science solely in terms of identifying the nature of this extraordinary virus that has taken over uh, all of our lives, uh, and indeed coming up with vaccines that are now making so much of a difference in terms of our seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, at the same time, that, of course, 
uh, all the issues that we've confronted politically over the last year around wearing masks, what it means to socially distance, uh, how you think about public health as a matter of both compliance, but also of uh, of social mindedness, uh, and ultimately uh, how and uh, whether we'll end up getting, you know, what we now call herd immunity through uh, enough people taking the vaccine are all issues that in a way condense the place of science in our society today. Yes, and I, I look forward to asking you about many of those tensions and many of the tensions of, around the ways that uh, people seem to be thinking about science, both the incredible exploration, uh, evolution, re you know, revolutionary ways that science is really impacting um, in positive ways the world, and then the people who look at it as uh, the center of all evil. From your point of view, w what is the New York Academy of Sciences? Um, what is science for the public good? Um, and why did you take the job? Well, the New York Academy of Sciences, it's an old institution, but it's evolved over its long history. Uh, and um, in the 19th century, it was a place where learned people would get together and give lectures. It's where Charles Darwin gave his lectures on evolution when he visited the United States. Thomas Edison was a member. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a member of the New York Academy. So it has all those kinds of uh, wonderful claims to distinction in the past. Uh, but it, uh, at various moments in, it, in its history, it focused on geography and natural history. Uh, for a long time, it was, in fact, housed in the uh, American Museum of Natural History in New York. Mm. Uh, but it, uh, since World War II, has focused a lot in the areas around the life sciences. It held one of the first conferences on antibiotics, and in fact, in the 1940s, uh, and charted the development of a whole suite of antibiotics that were developed after penicillin. Uh, and uh, at the same time, it was a place that uh, had major convenings around uh, HIV, around AIDS, uh, around SARS. It was the first place that held a conference on SARS when that epidemic struck the world. Uh, and of course, uh, in the last year, we've had almost 30 programs on, on COVID-19 and the whole set of issues around that. So it's been uh, it's been focused on a lot of different things over, over time. But uh, for me, the New York Academy is uh, uh, an incredibly uh, important organization because it takes science and it has a huge network of, of scientists that are part of both our boards, but also of our membership. Uh, and it uh, not only brings scientists together to talk about the latest advances and discoveries and issues and debates in, uh, in, in specific scientific fields, but then it uses that expertise to try to address general issues that uh, bear on science and on the role of scientific knowledge and scientific expertise. Uh, and so to me, it was a kind of perfect transition in a way from being, yes. uh, you know, chancellor at Berkeley, where I had great scientists, great humanists, great uh, uh, engineers. Uh, but I was also aware that almost every one of our challenges, both national and global, have some relationship to science. Almost every issue that I see in our future uh, does require uh, bringing science and scientists together with public issues. And in the case of the New York Academy and in the case of my whole uh, career, uh, to try to do that in a way that advances the public good 
uh, seems to me the, to be a good enough reason to, to have made this transition, even during a year when I was 2,500 miles away from the home office. Yeah, yeah, an incredible way to to get to start a time and uh, you know, and from that location. How have you thought about the role of science in society today and how do you think about it differently now one year later now that it has played such an obvious and everyday role? But has your view of science and the public good, the role of science in human life, do you, do you look at it differently right now? Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. And I guess I would say, first of all, that, you know, when I look back on on my academic administrative career, both at Columbia and at Berkeley, you know, my primary interest was to support research and education, basically advanced research and then the education of the next generations of, of scientists. And I, I wasn't as actively involved in thinking about, you know, taking scientific knowledge and scientific uh, um, uh, leaders and 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 using uh, you know their 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 extraordinary insights into you know different aspects of our natural and physical world to address larger larger kinds of questions and issues uh, and in a way uh, you know the the pandemic really has uh, crystallized I think the importance of, of of taking a broader view and so for me personally it's been a happy confluence of uh, you know. Uh, uh, of just you know decisions that get made on a very different kind of timeline and and for very different kinds of reasons to 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 take on this role and really take on the question of how science can can address uh, public issues. But the 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 question that you raise, what and how has my my view of science changed? It's it's certainly become very clear to me that uh, first of all there there is a a real communication problem. Uh, uh, there's a communication problem, both because scientists are not always very well trained in how to talk to the public, uh, and because the public is not always very well uh, positioned to understand what science is and how science works and how scientific discoveries unfold uh, and why it is that you can read about one study one day and then two months later read about another study and see things that potentially conflict and may, of course, raise, raise doubts and, uh, and heighten distrust. We're seeing that even right now, as you and I are having this conversation, one of the most recent statements from the CDC was around masks and the fact that uh, if one is vac- fully vaccinated, you don't need masks in public. Um, communicating on science is a tough thing. It's a very tough thing. And, uh, you know, it's not that scientists need to uh, study communication necessarily along with everything else they study to get to the point where they can do the advanced research they do. And of course, it feeds into a public sense that, uh, you know, they're just constantly changing their mandates that science is, is not about truth, but it's just about opinion, which, of course, is a fraught area of our entire political, social, cultural and public health life today. It certainly is. And I I found myself wondering in thinking about this conversation, how do you reconcile the trend that arguably science is as inspiring right now as perhaps any time in history? And I was trying to think about this, you know, you've got Galileo and and, you you have other periods of in history where science, the Renaissance, when, you know, science was at the forefront of affecting public thought and all of society. And in this one moment, we have the examples, we've got the COVID vaccine that you mentioned, uh, you know, just the 
among the most remarkable scientific discovery creations and based on years of um, scientific discovery. I know you know and the mRNA uh, work that, that has been done. You've got CRISPR, again, you know, that, that you are so close with. You've got the landing of um, Perseverance, the rover on Mars. I mean, you, you've got such some incredible scientific um, activity right now in, in, in society. And yet, simultaneously, it seems that science has never been more divisive. Um, climate change uh, doesn't exist. You know that, Nick. Um, we have, we have, you know, anti-vaxxers are a prominent voice in society. H- how do you recognize those? How do you reconcile those diverse trends? Well, first of all, Chris, you know, it has ever been thus. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Galileo, you mentioned, made extraordinary discoveries. You know, he was also put in prison and his books were burnt. And uh, he was uh, the subject of a great deal of uh, persecution because uh, some of his proposals about the nature of the universe were uh, deeply upsetting to, uh, to to people in his day and time. Uh, you know, if you look at the Renaissance uh, uh, across the board, there were, there were those tensions. I remember as a kid having these uh, neighborhood meetings around whether or not uh, we should all build a uh, fallout shelter together because of the threat of nuclear war. Mm. So you had the great discovery of nuclear fission. uh, And then you had, of course, the fear that that was going to be uh, those powers of creation would be turned to destruction. Uh, And, you know, it has uh, continued to be the case for years and years that uh, that science has these extraordinary moments of discovery and uh, opening up uh, the world. I mean, again, another wonderful thing when I was growing up was uh, was the age of space exploration began, you know, from yes. John Glenn to the moon landing to the Mars rover. Uh, you know, these are extraordinary demonstrations of science. And again, you spoke to uh, to mRNA. First time ever that we have a, uh, a new technology for developing a vaccine. Uh, that is in itself related through uh, RNA discoveries to CRISPR-Cas9 and the extraordinary work of Jennifer Down at Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier and other colleagues. Uh, and, and, and yet, uh, the, the, the counter-argument uh, not only continues, but in some ways is fed by all of these discoveries. So you have, um, uh, you know, growing uh, uh, interest in space aliens, you know, at the same time that you have space exploration, you have the, as I mentioned, the fear about, about, about the uh, misuse of, of nuclear weapons. You have, uh, even with CRISPR-Cas9, the concern that you can now genetically alter uh, a human being and introduce with a much more sophisticated technology than existed in terms of, uh, you know, 19th, 20th century debates over eugenics. Uh, uh, a new kind of way of uh, of creating designer babies, as they've been as they've been called, uh, and um, uh, and of course, uh, you know, there there are major concerns about uh, the relationship between you know vaccines and you know. So the charge went in an ill-fated article that was published in Lancet, the relationship of of the vaccine to autism. So you know it. First of all, it's, it's always been like this. Hmm. There have been not only these, uh, you know, science, anti-science kinds of trajectories, but that every step forward in science has produced in turn uh, reactions that uh, in some ways have been uh, exacerbated by, by the very success that science has. And I think one of, the, one of the challenges for us, and certainly one of the things I see uh, the New York Academy of Sciences is able to 
play an important role in uh, is to remind people, first of all, that science is predicated on facts that are demonstrable, true, reproducible, etc. Uh, but it's always interpreted by humans who are learning, uh, you know, through new and, and newer facts all the time, uh, what and how uh, the things that they're studying, uh, in fact, uh, operate. And that that human process of discovery is one that constantly is undergoing change. So it's a moving target. It's really important to remember that science alone is not going to be able to solve these challenges. It's not going to be able to deal with the great uh, 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 distrust that exists around science as well. So there has to be the recognition, in my view, that science and a larger understanding of what, you know, what we are as humans, what we are as human societies, uh, how they operate and, and, and the relationships between them. What role should business play um, in advancing science? What, what do CEOs say to you um, when you talk to them about supporting the sciences? I'll just say one thing before I answer your question, which is that another example that is uh, incredibly important in our, in our contemporary world uh, of the place of science, but also of the complications around scientific mm. advances and discoveries is technology. Yes. Uh, and I haven't mentioned that yet, but uh, you know, one of the people who I've recruited to the Academy board is Reed Hoffman, who of course was the founder of LinkedIn, LinkedIn yeah. uh, now is on the Microsoft board, but uh uh, Reed has been very interested in in in, in joining his own uh, uh, college and uh, and master's level education in questions of ethics, with his life as a as a as a technology entrepreneur, and we've talked a lot about the need to uh, to bring questions of ethics and uh, and the social use of technology into much uh, better conversation with the kinds of things happening within the space of technology itself. So I just mentioned that to also make clear that since business now is also, of course, uh, primarily uh, driven in some ways by technology, both in terms of new kinds of businesses, but also in terms of changing business processes, uh, you know, these kinds of wider questions uh, that, uh, that, that, that bridge uh, the solely uh, scientific or technological on the one side and the larger, you know, social, economic, cultural, even human dimensions of those kinds of changes on the other uh, are things I think that you know we 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 have to recognize as critical, uh, uh, critical for uh, you know for everything from the way we use social media, which of course there's a great deal of talk about today, uh, but also critical from the point of view of uh, of business. So there's nobody in business who isn't thinking about science in some way or another. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know we have a number of other uh, uh, business CEOs on uh, on the board of the New York Academy. Uh, I think they all believe that uh, in our in our current age, uh, uh, science is going to be a critical part, not just of uh, dealing with world problems, but of uh, also uh, developing their own products and and thinking about uh, the kinds of things that that business has to take on, even in terms of its uh, certainly in terms of its social responsibility, but also just more generally in terms of uh, recognizing uh, the the role that science and technology play in virtually every every part of our life. I think this has come out of the pandemic in part. There's a sense of urgency about restoring uh, the uh, the prestige of science hmm. that is shared across the business world. Uh, but you know, again, when you think about technology, uh, you know what 
what does it mean to use technology to be efficient and then find out that your algorithms are reinforcing stereotypes? You know, what, what, what does that do? What does it do if you're being efficient, but you're then displacing uh, a great many workers who used to assume that their careers would be spent in a particular industry uh, because they've just been uh, you know, made redundant because of artificial intelligence? These broader conversations are actually incredibly relevant for the boardroom as well. Again, with from a historical point of view, the amount of disruption, the amount of angst that exists in our society right now, whether that's the, the tension that we were just talking about, about anti-science, the tension that we see around the role that technology plays and the dislocation that can occur, whether that's in jobs, education, opportunity, housing that technology can play. In thinking about the answer you gave earlier about kind of, you know, it's always been thus as there has been scientific discovery and change, there's also been human pushback. But do you kind of look at where we are in history and think to yourself, yeah, man, this is this is an extraordinary time? Well, I'm sometimes reminded of conversations I used to have with my parents when they were alive about all the kinds of changes that had taken place during their lives mm-hmm. uh, in, in technology, from household appliances to, uh, you know, to 747s and, and the like. Uh, and in some respects, that generation uh, uh, underwent more in the way of technological change than we did. But the technological change that is under, undergoing, uh, uh, that, that is happening right now, is one that is just hugely disruptive. And the miniaturization of, of, of high computational power into, uh, into our iPhones that all of us carry around, the, uh, uh, what Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has called the fourth, fourth Industrial Revolution, where we're looking at the possibility of 3D printers printing not only uh, you know, the toys that you see sometimes on, on, on demo, but actually body parts, organs, uh, uh, any number of, uh, you know, uh, what does that do to everything from supply chains to our notion of what, what actually can be made, uh, in the world. And of course, when you begin thinking, whether it's in the medical, biomedical world, whether it's in the business world, whether it's in the world of government, whether it's in the world of, uh, of, 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 of issues having to do with the dark web. Um, the world is every, every assumption we have in some sense has been, uh, has been open, uh, open to question by, uh, by technology. So yes, uh, this is a moment where, uh, although you don't always see it, uh, you certainly feel it and you experience it and it affects almost every part of our lives. How important are experts, you travel in a universe of experts, and this polarization that, that we've been talking about a little bit, it seems to be totally polarized as well on experts. The tension between the push to put faith in our experts, right, follow the science, versus extreme populist anger against experts. I had uh, a conversation on this recently with one of my kids, and brought up the example of the best and the brightest and the humor around the sense of what exactly did it mean to be the, the so-called best and the brightest and, and where did that lead? Does it worry you the tension or the sense around expertise? Yeah, well, that's, you know, it's a great question, Chris, and it's one that, uh, that, I, that I do think about and worry about a great deal. Uh, 
you know, I again, I, I I don't think it's the first time that experts have been in the crosshairs of uh, a populist resentment of of one kind or another, but there is a way in which, when you think about something like, you know, the possibilities of uh, of, of, of of nuclear power on the one side, or the the threat to our uh, to our to our health from uh, from a virus on the other side. Uh, uh, that experts uh, really are critical for uh, for our basic survival, leave alone uh, for you know a world in which we can thrive. Uh, and so the 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 current um, anger and uh, and resentment and just outrage uh, about experts and expertise uh, is one that uh, that really does deeply concern me. I mean, one of the reasons I I, I went from Columbia to to, to Berkeley. Uh, was because it's uh, it's an it's a university in which on the one hand you have some of the best experts uh, in every field in the world, but on the other hand it has a huge commitment to uh, to access uh, to uh, trying to bring to the university as you know I mean people from all uh, kinds of backgrounds I mean we had you know many undocumented students we had students who had been formerly incarcerated we had students from foster care we had students who uh, had been homeless in uh, in their pre-collegiate lives, and and I think you know that was an important, uh, a really important uh, uh, thing to do to 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 see as a kind of microcosm of what is possible to bring people together from backgrounds that would never have imagined, uh, you know, being able to walk into a, a lecture hall that, of course, before before COVID, uh, and taking a course with a Nobel laureate. Um, now the problem is it's very hard to scale uh, this uh, to uh, to really encompass you know the, the 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 groups of people who have this kind of sense of being on the outside of uh, seeing a world in which the escalation of inequality and uh, and and privilege and wealth and all the rest of it has 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 aligned experts with you know with uh, with great um, with great power privilege and and wealth. Uh, and kept us out, uh, and that, of course, uh, is again uh, the symptom of what I think has been a, a political environment for the last thirty and forty years that has just sort of encouraged uh, 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 using these kinds of gulfs as 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 wedges for for political mobilization and uh, and 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 you know and political um, recruitment. So it's not easy to 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 come up with a simple solution uh, but I do think education is critical to this uh, and I do think that uh, those of us who are in the world of, uh, of of colleges and universities and I spent most of my life as, as as you know in the university world have a real obligation to try to uh, uh, really come up with new ways to uh, bring experts, uh, into a much closer set of relationships with those who feel like they're on the outside. Uh, and part of that too, and to go back to what we were saying about communication before, is also learning to look up from the lab bench or look up from the, 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 the scholarly paper or look up from the you know, particular uh, area of expertise that one has as an expert. Uh, and, you know, forgive this, but uh, become a little more anthropological, uh, you know, look at the world around uh, and and understand that uh, that one way to deal with this is to really get outside of your comfort zone uh, and try to come up with different ways to to bring expertise into a position of relevance for everybody. 
which leads me to wonder and and want to ask about leadership and how you think about leadership. You've um, you've held some uh, the, you know some of the senior most leadership roles in some of the most challenging organizations to manage. Um, Chancellor of UC Berkeley, uh, President and CEO of uh, New York Academy of Sciences. Um, you engage with CEOs, uh, with leaders of governments, of um, organizations, of nonprofits, of businesses. At the highest level, from your point of view, what is leadership? What is your style? You've written books on colonialism and ethno-history and India and imperial Britain. What would you title, perhaps, the book on management that maybe you've sworn you'll never write? But if you did, I'm, I'm sure that people would buy it, Nick. Well, I have to talk to you about that, Chris, you know, because uh, I have to increase my sales of, uh, of my books a little bit beyond the 200 that I can uh, mm. palm off to my, to my buddies in, in, in my particular disciplinary fields. But, uh, you know, the... the the, 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 as, I, as I've looked at, you know, the challenges of, of leadership and management over, over the years, I've learned a lot. Uh, and, uh, and I think, um, you know, when I started as a dean at, at Columbia to uh, leave the classroom and go into administration, I, I was just trying to support, uh, you know, the, the, the faculty uh, uh, to do the work that they needed to do, whether for education or for research. And as uh, as I as I did that for a long period of time, as I saw some of the I thought you know structural impediments to change that came from you know staying too comfortable with just being in one's department and just doing one's uh, you know one's one's research in one's little field, uh, knowing more and more about less and less, as another colleague of mine at Columbia once uh, said, was the want of professors. Uh, I've come to think that you know we really. Uh, as leaders have to take on the responsibility to think about changing institutions. Uh, and, um, you know, if anything at Berkeley, uh, uh, you know, I, I was a little bit too uh, <clears throat> quick to suggest the need to reimagine the university. There was a major budget problem. It had to do with the politics of the state of California, uh, the underfunding of the university. But you have, you have an obligation to think about, about changing these institutions, and this is a conversation that I think has been a, a really productive for me is to talk to people in the business world uh, and trying to understand better uh, why it is that institutions are important, but how it is that you keep changing institutions uh, to not so much honor the past, but to prepare for the future. Mm. Uh, and it is ultimately uh, the responsibility of leaders uh, to, to figure out that relationship between the past and the future. Because most of us, left to our own devices, just want to keep doing it the way we did it yesterday, last year, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and just keep doing the same old thing. You've been a strong advocate around the globalization of education. Um, where's the momentum on that today? And how do the various geopolitical trends between liberal and illiberal democracies between globalism and nationalism. Um, how, how do they play a role? So Chris, you have an hour or two. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a, a huge question, obviously. Yeah. yeah, good. So if you could boil it down to, you know, we've got 20 seconds left, Nick. So if you could just, uh, you know, g give me everything you got on the, the tensions between globalism, glo globalism and nationalism in 20 seconds and go. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, 
You know, look, I have been an advocate, as you said, of globalization. Uh, I've been an advocate in the sense that I've encouraged uh, universities I've worked in to uh, to try to recruit as many students uh, and faculty, for that matter, from around the world, because I thought that cultural exchange was always a good thing. And uh, and in fact, cultural exchange, I think, can, uh, can be the basis on which uh, better political relationships and better economic relationships can develop. Uh, but by the same token, over the last few years, I've been also spending time in different parts of the world. This is, of course, before COVID, uh, where uh, uh, there's a huge effort to build new universities. And I've tried to suggest that, uh, that you know, that, that certain kinds of global relationships could be very helpful, that, um, uh, that some of the models from, from the U.S. Uh, could also be helpful. For example, the need to have, along with wonderful STEM training and opportunities to have the liberal arts, uh, because that, again, opens things up. Now, the liberal arts, uh, you know, have a problem in, uh, in certain kinds of um, uh, certain kinds of political uh, regimes that uh, think that critical thinking is about being imaginative, but not actually being critical. Uh, and so you're constantly balancing that tension that exists, I think, in that very term that uh, we, we, we use sometimes all too flippantly about what the, uh, what the goals of the liberal arts really are. I guess the, the bottom line is that we need to ensure that as we, uh, as we, as we think about our future, uh, that we, uh, the future of our localities, the future of our communities, the future of our families, but also the future of our nations and the, futures of the future of our world and our planet. Uh, we, we have to uh, find a way in which we can uh, uh, build our capacity to understand uh, other people, uh, to develop greater forms of, of, of not just empathy, but of genuine understanding, to be able to imagine ourselves in somebody else's position. Uh, and that sometimes is about critique. It's sometimes about just trying to suspend the way in which you know, we ourselves think about the way the world looks. Uh, and start looking at ourselves, perhaps uh, uh, as uh, others uh, as others do, or as, or as we could finally imagine that others will. And that is a that that requires a global kind of uh, theater in which to operate. It requires a, a a very capacious sense of of education. And I think it, uh, it it's it's fundamental. I think to the to the success of of, of businesses in the world ahead as well. Well, I got to tell you, that scares me because that requirement that you're laying out, which, uh, by the way, I subscribe to, so many forces are pushing against that right now. We all subscribe to technology that reinforces our existing points of view. We more and more socialize with people with interviews. So at the same time that I'm hearing from you that the imperative future is to connect outside to understand where other people are coming from. Um, that that requirement comes at the exact time I think that there are many pressures pushing in the opposite direction. I feel exactly that concern, and that is indeed what drives uh, this call to action. I you know I do get I mean partly uh, uh, I'll do the mea culpa uh, partly when you go to American campuses uh, you see a kind of almost retrenchment. Uh, and it's a retrenchment on the one side uh, that is driven by the fact that you have much more diverse kinds of uh, student populations and uh, there are all kinds of historical issues that are being worked uh, through. Uh, but on the other side, uh, what's really critical is that we use these years of education to open up our 
our minds and our um, our capacity to 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 really, as I just said, uh, try to imagine, you know, how other people feel about the world. And we're not doing a very good job of that right now. We're not doing a a good job on 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 university campuses. We're not doing a good job necessarily in our politics. Uh, and we have a lot of other impediments that are not only local, but um, we can see, you know, driving, of course, a lot of ethno-national movements around the world. Uh, so uh, it ain't easy, but it is really important. Thank you. Um, Nick, very quickly, just to close, um, looking forward, you're entering now your second year, New York Academy of Sciences, so many issues that we've talked about. Um, what, what does a great year two look like for you? Well, the, um, going back to the office every now and then, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the nice things about the New York Academy is that I have a really, really great office on the 40th floor of the World Trade Center, Building 7. That's a great uh, office. So it gives me a, a view of the world, which uh, is as capacious as, uh, uh, as, as, as anyone could, could hope for. Uh, but really, I think the, uh, uh, you know, the, the next year is about figuring out uh, what this post-pandemic world is, is, is going to be all about. How are we going to live our lives? And a lot of this requires, again, refiguring the culture of work. And of course, by implication, the culture of life. Science is going to play a role in this. Um, my hope is that the New York Academy of Sciences plays a really critical role in both supporting science, but also interpreting science for all the others who are thinking through these issues. Uh, how we can both be safe, but also uh, um, really creative in how we think about the experience of the last 14, 15 months. Uh, So for me, uh, you know, the success of year two, which uh, begins on June 1, Hmm. uh, is is being able to play a role that is really uh, um, helpful uh, in what we're all going through and making uh, the next move uh, to what we still don't fully understand as the post-pandemic world. Nick, thank you. Thank you for your ideas. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.